want to um, just share with you something just for a few moments and then we're going to dive back into worship this morning. want to begin just by reading a verse that has really um, just hit me over um, the past couple of weeks. Do you ever read a verse in the Bible that is almost like a sledgehammer over your head? Um, and I was reading um, out of the Passion Translation, um, 1 John chapter 2. Um, thanks guys, you can be seated. You'll be there a while if not. Um, 1 John chapter 2. And this is what it says in the Passion Translation. Listen to this. We can be sure that we've truly come to live in intimacy with God. Not just by saying, I am intimate with God. Imagine that, that it's not enough just to say it. We can be sure that we truly come to live in intimacy with God. Not just by saying, I am intimate with God. But by walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Wow, what a verse that is. Let me read it again. We can be sure that we've truly come to live in intimacy with God. You know, if I were to ask um, most Christians this morning, who here has a friendship with Jesus? Um, I'm sure that we would all say amen. If I were to say, who here knows God, you have an intimate relationship with God, most of us here would say, yes, I agree. But John here writes and says, it is not enough just to say it. You have to live it. He says, it's not enough just to say, I am intimate with God. But this is how we really know that we have intimacy with God. We walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Wow. John is saying that we are not defined by what we say. We are not defined by what we sing. Can you imagine if we actually were defined by what we sang? Who, who knows, we would be in revival right now. If we actually lived what we sang, uh, you know, this, this nation would be on fire for God right now. Um, but we're not defined by what we sing. We're not defined by what we say. We're not defined even by what we believe mentally. But we are defined by how we walk. We are defined by how we live. And this Christian life has to go beyond songs and statements and beliefs. And it has to change the way that we live. Can you say amen? And the fruit of true intimacy is a changed walk. One that resembles Jesus. What would it look like if we actually walked like Jesus? What would it look like if the church truly lived as Jesus lived? A life of total surrender to the Father. A life fully committed to the purposes of God. A life of radical holiness. A burning prayer life. Deep passion for the lost. Sacrificial giving. Complete love and forgiveness. Deeply rooted in community. 
and full of the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. Can you say amen? That what I've just described is the life of Jesus that we see in the Gospels. And for us today, this is not um, kind of a life for the radical weirdos. Who knows? That's the goal. Come on, someone. The goal of our faith is to walk like Jesus. The, the goal of our faith is to become like Him. This life of radical surrender, of radical commitment, of prayer, of holiness, of power, of passion, of seeking first God and His kingdom. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was in, I was in Mexico. And um, I was asking um, the churches there, how has COVID um, affected Mexico? And it was heartbreaking to hear that as well as, um, you know, obviously people being sick, hospitalized and dying, um, one of the biggest um, kind of um, casualties um, in the pandemic has been pastors. And they've seen around 6,000 pastors die of COVID in the past 18 months. You imagine that? 6,000 pastors, senior pastors dying in the past 18 months. So I asked them, well, how has that affected the the, the church attendance and faith and passion, thinking that, you know, surely this would have really decimated people's faith and really, you know, turned people away from church. I mean, if even the pastors are dying, you know, what hope of the rest of us? They said the church has grown by 50% in the past year. So I, I said, why? And this is what they said. When all around us are dying, and even our pastors are dying, what can we do but seek God? They said, this pandemic, we thank God for it. Because it has forced us to pursue God like never before. Our church services are no longer about entertainment and show. We are clinging to Jesus like never before. We are turning to God in prayer and fasting. We are laying down our lives like never before because what else can we do? I was in a men's conference um, where there were about 1,500 men there. And who knows, if you can get men to church, you're doing something well. Um, and these men gathered from about 9 a.m. to about 11 p.m. with like a one-hour break for lunch, a one-hour break for dinner. And the rest of the time, it was just complete worship, prayer, Bibles open, notepads open, going after God with everything that they have. Um, on the Sunday, I was in a church and I... I I turned up on purpose because that was when they told me to get there an hour late for church. Uh, they'd already been praying for 30 minutes. And this wasn't like a pre-service prayer meeting where two people turned up. The entire church were there 
praying for 30 minutes non-stop and then went into 30 minutes of worship. Um, so this had already been going on an hour before I was there and I said to them, look, uh, you know, I don't want to miss out on the worship. Can I get in the, in the meeting? Because uh, they put me in some like back room somewhere. And they said, oh, don't worry, we've not even started yet. So it was two hours of solid prayer and worship before I got up to preach. Uh, children uh, laying on the floor in tears, shaking under the power of God. I got up to, to preach. I preached for about an hour. And then we had an hour of uh, the altars just being full of hundreds of hundreds of people wanting to encounter the Holy Spirit. In total, they were there four hours. And then they came back and did the whole thing again at night. So I said to them... Um, you, that this was church that they just the pastor regularly prays and fasts for 40 days at a time I said to them wow you guys are in revival um, and they said oh no we're not even close they said we're not as passionate as we need to be we're not as zealous as we need to be we're not as prayerful as we need to be uh, we're not as holy as we need to be um, it's like God in this 18-month period has refined us and purified us, but we are nowhere near the finished article. We need God to do it again. We need God to humble us again. And no matter what the cost, no matter what the sacrifice, uh, we need to go through another time where God just gets our focus and attention on Him before we can even think about using that word revival. It's a challenge, isn't it? Paul says this in Colossians. He, that's Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is a beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Nobody say in everything. Everybody says supremacy. Paul says in everything Jesus must have the supremacy. The Passion Translation says, he holds first place in everything. Now, who knows that Jesus is supreme this morning? Who knows that he is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the name above every name? Who knows that he is the great high priest? He is the one with all power, with all authority. He is the light of the world. He is the captain of the hosts of heaven. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is Emmanuel. He is the great I am. He is the word of God. He is, he is, he is almighty God. He is everything. Um, there is none like him, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the resurrection and the life, the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. Can you say amen? today in everything he has a supremacy but here's the thing the devil does not have a choice to recognize the supremacy of Jesus because he was defeated on the cross amen creation does not have a choice but to recognize the supremacy of Jesus because he redeemed it all the only creatures that have a choice whether to recognize the supremacy of Jesus or not, guess who? Me and you. In everything, 
he must have the supremacy. So the question for my life today is in everything in my life, does he have the supremacy? In my family, does he have the supremacy? In my home, does he have the supremacy? In my parenting, does he have the supremacy? In the way I uh, organize my finances, in the way that I organize my time, in the affections of my heart, in my thought life, in everything, does he have the supremacy? Does he hold first place in everything? Man came to Jesus and said, Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me uh, bury my father. And Jesus said, uh, let the dead bury the dead. Another man came and said, Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye. Uh, he, he said, no one who turns his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What was wrong with what on, an, on a human level would be perfectly ordinary statements to make? I want to suggest it. there was a word in both of those statements and it was the word first. First, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye. First, let me bury my father. You see, in the kingdom, he must be first. In the kingdom, he must be supreme. More than any other relationship, more than any other priority, more than any other goal, he must be first. He must be supreme. He must be number one. See, we just sang, didn't we? You have no rival. You have no equal. Can we say that together this morning? You have no rival. You have no equal. I want to suggest to us that he can only have no rival if we understand he has no equal. Let me say that again. He can only have no rival if we understand he has no equal. You see, the truth is that he does have rivals in my life. There are things that rival him for my time, for my affections, for my priorities. Am I the only one? He does have rivals in my life. But I can, I can say you have no rival when I understand that he has no equal. When I understand that Jesus is the only one that can satisfy when I can understand that Jesus is the only one that can save, that Jesus is the only one that can forgive, that Jesus is the only one that can give grace, that Jesus is the only one with power, that Jesus is the only one who can give joy and peace and love, that Jesus is the only one who can restore, that Jesus is the only one that can fill every desire and satisfy every part of my life when I realize he has no equal then then he can have no rival sometimes feel like Peter who when Jesus said do you want to go away as well remember loads of people left him and Peter said where else can we go only you 
have the words of eternal life. Friends, where else can we go? Who knows Jesus is the only one who can give life. Jesus is the only one worth living for. Jesus is the only one worth worshipping. Jesus is the only one worth pursuing. It is only Him and Him alone that can satisfy. And when I understand He has no rival, He has no equal, there is none, none, none like Jesus. Can you say amen? Um, on Tuesday, I picked um, Judah up from school. And uh, he looked so miserable. So I said, Judah, what's wrong? And he showed me um, the piece of, this piece of paper, which was um, his spelling test um, that he'd done at school that day. And um, I, I looked and I couldn't understand the problem because it was nine out of ten. Now, for me, you know, if, you know, if I've got 9 out of 10 uh, spelling tests, you know, that thing's going on a certificate in the, you know, we're framing that thing. But, but it, you know, he, it was like the worst thing in the world and he was miserable all night because he got 9 out of 10. But Jack had got 10 out of 10. So for him, 9 out of 10 was a complete failure. Um, and it reminded me, that Jesus wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus and he marked them out of eight. And he gave them seven out of eight. Now, if Jesus were to mark Revive Church and he would have said, I'm giving you seven out of eight, I think I'd be pretty happy with that. Anyone else? I'd be like, yeah, come on, you know, pay rice for the pastors. Come on, we're doing a good job. Seven out of eight. You know, he, says, um, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. You can't tolerate wicked men. You've tested those who claim to be apostles and have found them uh, false. You have persevered and have endured hardships in my name and you've not grown weary. Seven out of eight, brilliant. Yet, I hold this against you. So out of eight things, they pass flying colors in seven. But there's one thing that they've forsaken. He said, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Well, so what? We still got seven out of eight. Jesus said, unless you repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Now the lampstand we know is the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is Jesus saying there, look, I'll take my Holy Spirit from you unless you get sorted. You see, we might look at seven out of eight and think, yeah, that's pretty good. But that one thing meant that everything else counted for nothing. Because to Jesus, that is the most important thing. That he is first love. Now, it doesn't say they didn't love Jesus. I'm sure, as a church, they loved Jesus. You look at all the stuff they'd done. Hard work, faith, perseverance. Of course, they loved Jesus. But he was no longer their first love. He was no longer their supreme love. And because of that, 
He said, repent. Or I will come and remove your lampstand. One of the most severe things that Jesus could say to a church is, I'm not going to turn up anymore. Why? Because I am no longer the supreme love in your life. That word forsaken, you have forsaken your first love. It it means uh, to let go. In other words, like if you've been gripping onto something and you let it go, that's what it means. You You have let go of your first love. Friends, I want to suggest that we have to hold on to our love for Jesus more than anything else. And we can be hardworking and faithful and have good doctrine and we can, we can be persistent and all the other stuff. But if we let go of first love, everything else counts for nothing. We have to guard and protect our love for Him and make sure that it is the supreme thing in our lives. Remember when Um, Jesus came to uh, Peter after the resurrection. They're they're by a fire and it's the restoration of Peter. And what did Jesus say? Simon, do you love me? That was the only thing he was bothered about. Do you love me? And he, he said this, do you love me more than these Now, theologians have argued what are the these that Jesus was talking about. So some some theologians think that Jesus was referring to the other disciples. So Jesus was saying, do you love me uh, the most out of all the other disciples? Um, Some people think that Jesus was referring uh, to the fishing boats. Because remember, uh, Peter had just gone fishing. So he was saying, do you love me more than your career? Do you love me more than your source of income? Some people think that Jesus was referring to the miraculous catch of fish. So he was saying, do you love me more than the miracles? Do you love me more than the, the provision? Which is correct? Yes, all of them. It doesn't matter what the these are that Jesus was pointing at or referring to. Do you love me more than these, more than anything? Am I the supreme love? Am I your first love? Am I everything in your life? Matthew 6, 33, you know it well. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you as well put my word first put my principles my priorities first put living for me and my kingdom and prioritizing my kingdom first and all these things will be added unto you as well all these things it doesn't matter what they are What matters is that he is first. One more scripture, Psalm 27. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Wow, we we think it's commitment if we turn up two days a week. 
Psalmist said, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. One thing, supreme thing, first thing, to love him, to pursue him, to seek after him, to gaze upon him, to worship him, to surrender to him, to live for him. What I find really interesting in the times that we're living in is that verse 4 is the sandwich in the middle of these two verses. The previous verse says this, Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. And the verse after says, In the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. So uh, the, the bread on one half of the sandwich is, The world's in a mess. The bread in the other half of the sandwich is, the world is in a mess. But the sandwich in the middle is this, one thing. I'm seeking him. I'm pursuing him. I'm gazing upon his beauty. One thing I desire to gaze upon the Lord, even though an army besieged me. If an army were besieging you, would you not be tempted to have one eye on the army? But no, one thing is to focus not on COVID, not on new variants, not on economic struggles or all the stuff that's going on in the world. One thing, to gaze upon Jesus, to gaze upon Him. There's a beautiful verse in the, in the Song of Songs where the bridegroom is talking about his bride and he says, you are beautiful, you have dove's eyes. And the interesting thing about a dove is that a dove can only focus on one thing at a time. So when he says, you have dove's eyes, he's saying this, all your attention is on me. All your affections are on me. All of your focus is on me. Because here's here's what I want to close with. How do we get on fire? How do we get first love back? How do we make him supreme? We have dove's eyes. We put all our attention upon him. Because when we gaze into his eyes, guess what his eyes are like? His eyes are like flames of fire. And here is the, how do you get love for God from God? How do you get a desire for God from God? How do you get on fire for God? A lot of times people ask me that. How do I get on fire for God? And you know what I say to them? You can't. He is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit and fire. It's not my job to get myself on fire. It's my job to gaze into the eyes of fire. And He sets my heart ablaze. So first love is not, you know, what do I do to get back on fire for God if you've lost it? It's gaze on Jesus and let him fill you. Church in Ephesus, uh, Matt and um, Becca, do you want to come up? Church in Ephesus that Jesus said, uh, this I have against you, you've forsaken your first love. Repent. And then he says this, And do the things that you did at first. 
Well, what did they do at first? Well, it's great that we have the Bible, isn't it? Because you can track back how the church at Ephesus started. And the church at Ephesus started with Paul coming along to 12 men who were disciples. And he said to them, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So he sorts out their doctrine. And then it says he laid hands on them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to prophesy. When Jesus said, do the things that you did at first. Is Jesus trying to get the church in Ephesus to go back to their roots, which was a, an infilling with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so I want to pray this morning in the five minutes that we've got that the Holy Spirit, that Jesus would fill us this morning with his fire and that we would go into this winter Christmas period with him as first love, with him as supreme, with dove's eyes fully focused on him.